and you may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. All right, it's going to be a great day today. I hope it's already been a great day for you. Um, last week we closed up a series called Made for Mission. Hopefully some of you remember that. Uh, we talked about, uh, we tried to get above the waves of life to look at the big picture. Starting 2020 saying, all right, what is my real purpose? What is it that God has me on this earth to do? And we talked about how following Jesus is not just really rituals or riding it out on earth until we can finally get to heaven, right? Our time here now is about becoming people of love like Jesus. Loving God, loving our neighbors as he loves us. That the full life that Jesus talks about is when all parts of our lives are full of him. Really. And so with that goal still in mind, we're going to start a new series this week. And really we're going to talk about, talk about a topic that if, if we are sincere about saying, Jesus, I, I, I do want to be fully transformed. I want you to change all aspects of my life. At some point we do have to talk about this tough subject, which is sexuality. Some of you are like, uh, uh, what? <laughs> Excuse me? Did he just say what I think he said? Yes. Yes. some point we have to talk about sex. And now that I've said it, maybe we can pray and go home. <laughs> Honestly, though, I, I get it. I get it. This is not a comfortable subject. You're the one listening. I'm the one who has to talk about it. I think I would rather talk about tithing today than I would giving and money the next day I have to talk about this. But like we said, at some point, we do have to at least get an understanding to talk about this one issue. And I know for a lot of us, we think maybe this is the first time you've ever even heard somebody in church talk about it. And when I say we're about to do a four-week series on it, that sounds a little extreme. In church... Are we supposed to even talk about these things at church? Well, truth is, our screens and our magazines have no problem talking about this all the time. And we've been joking about it since before we even know what it was. So in my opinion, I think church is exactly where we should be talking about it. And there's a couple reasons. Number one, while we might like to try to sweep the issue under the rug, the Bible is not bashful about it. And we want to be people who understand that if this is the God has revealed himself to us, then this is for the formation of the whole person. And so we want to look at the whole body of God's word, don't we? And if it talks about it, we at some point have to address it too. But number two, we have to talk about it because in my opinion, this topic, when not discussed, already carries more confusion, pain, and shame than just about any topic we could discuss. And I think that a huge reason for that is because the church has been silent. Because when we are silent, it only causes confusion. Confusion leads the door wide open to all kinds of deception, to, to all sorts of pain and shame. When we are silent, there's just the stigma that's attached to it that now it's dirty. It must be ungodly. When we're silent, we're left believing that, ah, well, sexuality is just about a bunch of do's and don'ts with mostly don'ts. And if I come to church and actually am honest about it, since they're quiet about it, 
I'm going to stay quiet about it because if I actually talk about it, then all of a sudden now I'm going to be judged. I just know it. Do you see why? I love what a Christian leader named Howard Hendricks once said. He said, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. And if we don't at some point stop to look at how do we understand this, who is going to help us understand how our sexuality is, comes together with the grand story of God's love and redemption? So therefore, we're taking the month of love to talk about it. Month of February. Um, and while you're trying to make plans for next Sunday morning, let me encourage you. Please understand that, yes, we're breaking this open today. We're talking about today. Next week, we're going to get into talking about how does Jesus meet us in the midst of our sexual brokenness. We're all broken in some shape, form, or fashion. We're, we have a guest speaker coming in one of these weeks that I do not think you'll want to miss. We'll have some stories shared from our own people in our congregation uh, that I think it'll be very encouraging and life-giving to you. Uh, but ultimately, I am not sharing this series because I want to come and bash you over the head with the Bible. I'm not sharing this series because I am the perfect example of purity and looking down upon you all. Like, I, get, I, I take the Bible seriously, but I also take seriously that this is a really tough subject. It's a very fragile subject. And so I just want to let you know that, that, that we have prayed and studied and prepared more for this series than any other series that I've done here. We've been talking about it for over a year. We've been studying it, the elders, the staff and I, for several months now. And we've, we've sought to dig in and say, all right, how can we explain this in a way that is life-giving, in a way that points, people, points us all to the love of Jesus that we just sang about? Because I don't know about you, but I think the church is supposed to be a hospital. I think it's supposed to be a place where we come with our honest areas of brokenness and where we can find the healing power of God. And so we're going to talk about it. But I do want to let you know um, that in my own studies, I found two guides extremely helpful as far as understanding Scripture and what God's Word says. You can find both of these on the bookstall outside, or if you don't want to be caught looking at them, you can order them on Amazon. Um, but uh, the first one, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, uh, is, is a fantastic just helping you understand uh, the theology, the biblical. It's a little heady, so, but if you like heady kind of stuff, this is your book. This is your guy. Um, the other book that has been very helpful to me is Rethinking Sexuality by Dr. Julie Slattery. Um, this came highly recommended, and as I've read it, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so accessible. This is so just down to earth. Um, and so check out either of those books in whatever way you like. Um, but where do we go from here? Well, let's pray. <laughs> and then we'll uh, jump in and read God's Word together. So God, uh, we give this right to you. It is what it is. And we know uh, that we don't want to just talk about it, God, so that we can talk about avoiding the bad things. We want to talk about it because we want to pursue your good, beautiful design. We want to chase after to be transformed, to be like you. That's really our goal. So God, I pray that we will hear your Word with that goal in mind. That no matter what our past has been, we know that in your life that we've been forgiven, we've been washed clean, and now you are leading us toward yourself. May we see that, believe that, and trust your word in that journey. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So as we kick this off, let's start by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians is a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to a bunch of brand new Jesus followers in the ancient city of Corinth. And I think you'll find as we read this that the, the, the thinking, the mentality of Corinthian culture was, is very similar to our own. They have a ton of things in common. And so we're going to see what exactly is Paul saying to them. Now, as we read this, don't feel like you have to understand everything right away. But the thing I do want you to think about is what is the relationship between the physical body and God? How is it that, what is, what is, what is teaching, what, what does Paul teach us about our own physical bodies as they relate to God? All right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 12, you can follow on the screen or your own Bible. Paul, speaking for the Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food is for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's a lot there. We're going to unpack that. But before we seek to understand what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians, do we understand our own culture? We talked about how if we're silent, it's not like nothing happens. If we're silent on this issue, some other way of thinking about sexuality fills the void. Do we understand what that is? You know, there's that story you probably heard before of a fish swimming in the ocean. He has two other fish swimming beside him. The first fish says, hey boys, how's the water? And they kind of give each other a weird look and keep swimming. And after he passes on, the two fish say to each other, what in the world's water? Do we know the cultural waters within which we're swimming? Because if we're silent on this, something else automatically pours in those gaps. What is our dominant cultural understanding of sexuality? And then we'll compare that to what is God's design. Because the main view, the dominant view today, is that sexuality starts and ends with the individual's desires. Now, you might be able to think of some scenarios around you that, like, well, that's not exactly true. Sure. But what I'm saying is the dominant story or idea in our culture, the main secular story is that you do whatever you want, you look at whatever you want, as long as it's not hurting anybody and everybody's consensual. Am I right? All right. Make sure I'm not the only one. I'm not saying anything that's surprising people, but while that might seem to us in our lifetime to be uh, the growing idea around sexuality, it's new to us. This is not a new idea in the history of the world. 
In fact, that whole mentality of I can do what I want whenever I want, look at whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting anybody, that goes all the way back to Corinth too. Because they told Paul, I have the right to do anything. That sound familiar? Who says the Bible isn't relevant? (laughs) I have the right to do anything. But the Corinthians, though they have the same conclusion as our own culture, they both arrive at that in different ways. The Corinthians said, we have the right to do whatever we want. One, because, well, God's forgiven us. Right? Grace. And number two, we believe that our bodies, our physical bodies, are going to burn in the end before we go to heaven anyway. So what does it matter what I do with it now? But while that's their thinking, and while they're justifying it in that way, our own culture gives a big amen to that I have a right to do anything, but it just justifies it in a different way. While Corinth says, I'm forgiven, it's going to be destroyed in the end, our own culture says, you know, why believe God anyway? See, whatever we believe, and I hope you'll get this and see this, whatever we believe about sexuality ultimately stems from who we believe God is and what we believe about human beings. Whatever we believe about sexuality stems from whatever we believe about God and who we are as human beings. For the Corinthians, they believed God just forgave whatever and didn't really matter. He was the, you know, the dad who had gave out no consequences at all. And they believed that God was going to destroy the body in the end, so what does it matter? For our own culture, they said, we don't need God to justify this. We'll just put him out of this, and then we're all set. Now we can do whatever we want. And so while much in our own culture said we don't need God in this, my next question though is what does does the dominant secular story say about us as human beings? Who are we? Well, I think there's a Russian author named Leo Tolstoy who I think is brilliant and he described the secular understanding of humanity in three words. He said, we are simply in the words of our secular society, particles in progress. (laughs) Particles. There is no soul. A human being is a material thing, infinitely complex, material being made up of particles that are infinitely, you know, mutating, evolving over time. That we are, and the hopeful assumption, and see, this is where the secular, those who have the secular view on all of these things still have to have faith. They still believe that, well, this whole collection of particles that makes up me, I still believe that this is somehow moving to a better place. This is progressing. That somehow all of these particles are evolving. That the biological winds of change are moving me toward a better destiny in the end. And so as we wrestle with that, and we see that you know, in the whole secular story, we don't need God, but we're just simply particles in progress. Can you understand then how, if we understand ourselves as in progress, then you understand that, that all these particles here, I think, are mostly, mostly good, moving in a good direction. So therefore, I must be mostly good. And if I'm mostly good, my desires must be mostly good. And if my desires are good, then... You know what? If I'm going to figure out who I am, I need to listen to those desires to give me a clear path forward. You guys tracking with me so far? I want to make sure I'm not getting... 
Because I'll say something again. Not that that will help, but I'll say it again. But ultimately, if we believe that I am progressing, that whatever this biological form that I am as a human being is progressing, then I believe that ultimately I should trust my desires to lead me toward my identity, toward my fulfillment. The meaning of life is then you do you. I'm responsible for my own desires. Following them, you're responsible for yours. You do you. YOLO. Live it up. You only have one life. My feelings, my experiences, then become my authorities. There is no God to ultimately give me direction. So as a result, my feelings, my own desires create my own identity. But as a result of that whole line of thinking, we eventually end up like Judges 17 describes the Israelites, which is, That they got to a place where they just did whatever was right in their own eyes. That is the ultimate progression of things. So if you understand that is true, how does that then shape the secular story's view of sexuality? How does that help us understand where sexuality fits in? Well, really, sexuality in the secular story starts and ends with me. Me. I'm not responsible for you you're responsible for you i'm just responsible for my own desires and my own pursuit so in essence i'm just a bunch of particles in progress and i see a nice particles in progress right over there they're really in progress and i think maybe you and i can get together and we can just i don't know like i have my needs you have yours maybe we can just try to i don't know satisfy each other Maybe I'll just try to make you happy, you just try to make me happy, and then that will be the recipe for my own fulfillment. I have to find that person who can make me happy. Does that sound familiar at all? Is that not the dominant view of marriage in our own society? Or togetherness, or whatever it is. The focus of the secular story is not on long-term commitment, it's on short-term fulfillment. That ultimately, I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you physically to be vulnerable with me, but I'm not willing to promise you my life. I want physical vulnerability, but I don't want whole life vulnerability. In this way, the whole secular story in my opinion, lacks real integrity. Because as one pastor said, I'm basically asking you to do with your body what I'm not willing to do with my life. And so I have to ask us, we as human beings, we all want that relationship, that person or friends or partner, whatever it might be, we all want that relationship of someone who will embrace us and accept us just as we are. And know the safety of that kind of relationship. Does the secular story really bear the ability to be able to do that? Can the secular story make love or just lust? Because as we wrestle with this, we're left wondering, does it have the capacity to actually meet that deep soul need that we all have? And so I agree, in, in this book, Rethinking Sexuality, Dr. Julie Slattery makes a conclusion. She says, 
Sexuality is understood through one of two possible lenses. Either it represents a personal expression of identity and feelings, secular story, or it is an intentional aspect of God's design for humanity. Two totally different ways of approaching it, and they do not lead to the same place. Okay, so then how, if, now that we understand the ocean within which we swim, how does that really compare with God's design? As we go to God's Word, how do we unpack this now? Because as we see in God's grand story, Scripture lays out that that, that ungoverned, Desire or lust only leads to slavery, while God's pure love sets us free. We're going to see that theme over and over again. I'll try to unpack that for us. But again, what we understand about sex begins with who we know God to be and what we believe about us as human beings. And so what does God's word ultimately say that he is? Well, in the very beginning that our world was created, or even before the world was created, there existed God. God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In perfect relationship, unity in himself. But he existed in relationship. But he decided that he also wanted to create this world and humanity. And so when he set apart to create this world, the God of love created us to discover ourselves in relationship with him. So Genesis 1.27, the first real description of who we are. He says that male and female were created in God's image. What does that mean? That means that you and I, in our own search for self-discovery, we, who we are is fundamentally intertwined with who He is. And that God, before we were even born, before we performed, before we did anything, that we were already endowed with value, purpose, dignity. Because God said so. And if we want to discover who we really are, it's not by the pursuit of whatever desires or feelings hit us. It's ultimately by understanding who he is. A guy named John Calvin once said, Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And within his beautiful design, we see that God never made sex to be a shameful thing. In Genesis chapter 2, he says that the man and the woman were one flesh, naked, not ashamed. While we often associate the talking of sex and God as shameful together, God says, that's not the way I made it. That's never the way I made it. When did shame enter the world, though? Ironically, when the desires of human beings decided to go outside God's design to fulfill itself on their own. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, the oldest lie came on the scene, basically saying, if you really want to be free, if you really want to find self-fulfillment, you got to go after it yourself. Don't listen to God's way. But at that very moment, trust eroded. The man and woman couldn't look each other in the eyes anymore. Insecurity entered the world. Emotional manipulation. Usury. All of it. 
Shame filled the void where intimacy and pure love once stood. And despite all that, though, what's the amazing part? Is that's just, that's how the story begins, but that's not how the story ends. And God's grand story, despite all that was lost, God, in his steadfast love, said, I am going on a rescue mission for them. Despite whatever cost it might require, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to bring them back, to make a way for them to come back into relationship with me. And so Ephesians 2 lays it out perfectly. It says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That Jesus in perfect love stood between us and death as the perfect sacrifice, saying, I am willing to do whatever, pay whatever, so that they might come be unified with me. And as a result of that, this is why Paul is able to say at the end of that passage we read earlier, He's saying, you're not your own. You were bought. He paid the ransom for your life. So that you might be brought back from the power of sin, death, and evil. And that you might instead be united with him. And so you can imagine, it is almost like a picture of a wedding ceremony. Where one person says, I'm coming, I'm bringing everything I am for you. And he's saying, I want you to meet me there too. So now, our bodies, Paul says our home for the Holy Spirit. He also adds that we are members with Christ. And in fact, our physical bodies matter so much. And what, how we use them matters so much to him. He says, and oh, by the way, one day they're going to be resurrected. It's going to be a little different. It's going to be a major upgrade. But it's going to be resurrected with him. God stopped at nothing to be one with us. So while the secular story, it pivots around lust and desire and desire for self-fulfillment on our own. You see, God's grand story moves according to his pure love and his desire to be unified with us as human beings. So Paul says, don't be fooled. Your whole, I have the right to do anything, if you just simply chase after your desires, he says, that doesn't set you free. He says, that's actually going to end up, you're going to be mastered by it. You're not in control of it. It controls you. Lust is not self-discovery. It is further slavery. But life in the Spirit of God sets us free to discover who He's made us to be. That's your shouting moment right there. That's it. I need some feedback back there. Yeah. I've been encouraging a couple ameners in this church to keep going. But all that to say... How do we understand sexuality now in light of God's grand story? How does all of that help us make sense of the fact that we are sexual beings? And what are we supposed to do with this? How do we understand our desires? And how, do, how, do, how, do we, how are we meant to, uh, to live the, the, this, such a personal part of our lives? Is this the part where I say that you can't have sex at all ever again? I hope not, Right? But what is the role in God's grand story? That ultimately, in God's design, sex is a powerful gift 
that points to his committed sacrificial love. I, I don't have to convince anybody here that sex is a powerful thing. It's powerful both for potential damage, but also beauty. There's nothing like sex that can bring a man and woman together in pure intimacy. And there's nothing like sex that can break families apart. There's nothing like it that can lead to the greatest vulnerability and safety. And there's nothing but sex that can lead to the deepest wounds. There's nothing that can establish the strongest social connections, emotional connections, excuse me. But there's also nothing that can sever trust more. And so in Proverbs 6, there's a father trying to explain this to his son. And explain to him how powerful this gift of sex can actually be. And in doing so, he compares it to fire. And if you think about it, in New England in the winter, we know what a gift fire is. It's warmth, it's energy, it's light, it's all of these things. But we also get that fire, when used outside of a proper fireplace or fire pit or whatever, can cause untold damage. And so we have to ask, because we know fire can cause damage, does this mean that we just get rid of it? No. No. That even though we know the damage it can cause... This doesn't mean that we eliminate it altogether. It just simply means that we understand how to enjoy it within healthy limits. So therefore, the Bible makes it clear. It says that like fire, sex is a powerful gift. You have books of the Bible like Song of Songs that is just all a celebration of this one gift. We see that this is something that God has given us since before our desires led us astray. It's not a dirty thing. It's not, it's not designed just for physical union, though. It's, it's, it's an emotional bond. That we have these desires within us because it's a consistent reminder that we were made as relational beings. We were made to live in intimacy. In part with human beings, but ultimately with God and who He is. But we also understand that this, like fire, if this is something that is pursued outside God's own healthy constraints or limits, that this can lead to our own slavery or to us being burned. This is exactly why he says in verse 18, he says, Flee, run away from any expression of sex that is outside what God has. Why? Because it will burn you in the end. The pursuit of somebody else might be thrilling, but when you eventually get to the place of realizing that that person is not actually interested in loving you or committing himself to you, that scorches our sense of self-worth. When we get in a habit of viewing other human beings made in the image of God as simply an object for our pleasure, it sears our conscience. Like this is something that God is ultimately trying to lead us toward human flourishing in his design, not away from it. He's not trying to hold back the good. He's trying to show us how to best enjoy this gift that he's given us. Therefore, God has designed sex to be enjoyed after a promise of love. I mentioned that word integrity earlier. And what is it? You know, when two people come together before God, 
I mean, they, before anything else, they pledge themselves and they say, you know what? In sickness and in health, when my body looks great and one day when it's dragging the ground, like, I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm all in. Before you perform for me, before you meet my needs, before you, you have it all together, you make me happy, I'm promising I'm going to be there for you no matter what. What love is there except God that can do that? That ultimately, the marriage vows are a promise to learn to love someone. Not just because it makes me happy, because it's also an expression of my love and worship to my God and who He is. That before... I give myself to you physically. I promise to be with you through all the twists and the turns of life. That marriage is so much more than sex, but sex is one of those ways in a marriage commitment, in a marriage relationship covenant, that we consistently renew our vows as a couple. It's our way of saying physically, I'm all in no matter what, no matter what you look like, no matter how my desires might even be leading me, I am yours. And thereby, only within that marriage commitment can sex be something that is enjoyed as absolute whole person safety, vulnerability, and rest in the love of God through a spouse. This is the beautiful design that God has to be enjoyed. It is a physical sign of our commitment to our spouse. It is a physical symbol of the total self-giving love of God. And Scripture is clear, though, until we are willing to commit ourselves in relationship, actually commit our whole lives to somebody, to try to explore sexuality outside of that is playing with fire. It's playing with fire. That said, I'm not saying all of this so that I could make all the single people in here remind you what you don't have. Or tell all of us in here, remind all of us how far short we fall. I am with you in the fallen shortedness. We are all in process of understanding what it is. I'm not doing this whole bump set guilt spike on your faces, you know, with this whole message, right? That's not the intent of God's word. It never has been. The intent is to give us a vision of hope. To show us what God's love is actually meant to be. That we might ultimately, if not now, someday experience the intimacy and connection in the deepest way as God intended it to be. If you've come from the secular story, I know this is a major paradigm shift for you. So I'm asking you not just to take my word for it, but to actually go to God's word and study it for yourself. Dig into it. Own whatever you see God's word speaking own that for yourself as long as you're going to it with an honest, open heart. But we do all have to ask, like, what's ultimately leading my own sexuality? Is it my own desires or am I letting God's design lead me? Desires are not a bad thing. God gives us those, right? Those are there for a reason. But are we allowing him to channel them or are we ultimately leading us ourselves outside of it? For those in here who are single. And you long for a day when you can be connected with someone in this way. And it's not easy. I'm not going to pretend like it is. But one, well, something I read this week that really gave me a lot of encouragement is Dennis Hollinger, who is an old professor, president 
of a seminary I went to. It said, life without sexual intimacy in marriage is not a deficient life. Rather, life without intimacy with God and Christ is deficient. That in the end, we believe as human beings that in the end is not sex and marriage. In the end is perfect unity, enjoying the very glory of God before us. That is the final end. His praise will ever be on our lips. And that is a promise that we all have, that yet none of us have fully experienced that level of intimacy yet. But when my body and everything else is fully committed to God, then I can freely love. So where do we go from here? All I ask is that each of us wrestle with, where is God's heart in this? If you are married, what would it look like in your own marriage relationship to love your spouse in such a way that is consistently focused on him or her? That is saying, I'm not coming to you expecting you to just meet my needs, but I'm actually, I'm seeing you. I want to meet your needs. I I, I want to be here for you, expressing the very love, self-giving love of God to your spouse. If you are single, I encourage you in this, to go to God with your questions, with your struggles, with your doubts. Trying to wrestle with these things apart from Him is what often gets us into wonky situations, right? What would it look like to go to God honest and open and to say, man, I'm struggling. Might there be somebody else in this church that, that is a solid friend? That is a solid friend that you know loves you just as you are. That you could come and just talk to some of these things about. You could pray together. You could wrestle with these things. But I please understand, like, if you are single, you are not deficient. God, you are fully loved for who you are, just as you are. And I hope you hear that. And so, as a church... As we think and wrestle with what is God's love really? And what is it like? And what is, who is he? And who has he made us to be? I feel like there's no better way than, than to stop and say, okay, let's stop and remember his love given for us. If we know that ultimately we are being made into people of love, that his spirit lives within us and he's shaping us and transforming us, what better way to actually think on that and meditate on that than to come and take of the Lord's Supper, which celebrates His life fully given for ours. So in a moment, I'm going to invite you guys to come down and take the Lord's Supper together as one big family. But before we do that, I just want to give us a moment of silence. That on your own, it doesn't need to involve anybody else, say, God, is there any part of my life that I do not trust you with? Are there any areas where I'm struggling to trust you? And just simply give that to him and just ask him to show, him, show you how we can trust him more with all aspects of our lives. Just take a moment of silence now.